Welcome back to the Boots on the Ground pod. Normally, of course, we have myself alongside Ben Conroy. Not the case for this episode. Ben taking a trip up to the lovely state of New York for some much needed rest and relaxation. Ben's, of course, working in the real world. I'm still a college student, so I'm afforded some some certain luxuries of a, a, a life that doesn't exactly have the same amount of responsibilities as Ben has. So he's taking a much needed break for travel during this recording process. So I will be taking the reins alone for our 23rd episode of the boots on the ground pod. Our first one where it's just one person, but potentially something we see in the future when either Ben or myself is a a little too busy to record as these, these wake forest basketball games in the ACC schedule really starts getting busy. First off, let, let's get to the, the reality of things. I was down in, in Tallahassee on Tuesday night where the, the nine-game winning streak and the 3-0 hot start in the ACC for the Demon Deacons fell to the hands of the Seminoles. and 87-82 loss for Wake Forest in a game where despite just about every single thing that could seemingly go wrong, going wrong. Wake Forest had ample opportunities to win the game. They, they being Wake Forest, made several runs, including a, a, a 9-0 run in the second half that had the Deeks leading by two with six minutes remaining, but couldn't pull it out. The The Seminoles did enough to win, but it felt like a game that, that Wake Forest lost versus Florida State actually winning. Cam Hildreth was impressive, 25 points. Poopy Miller also a 21. But the the story of this basketball game, of course, is the 20 turnovers. In my mind, it's incredibly hard for a basketball team to win anywhere in any conference, especially in the ACC, for a team to win a game when they have 20 turnovers. And 13 of them came from the the Wake Forest trio of guards in in Boopy Miller, Cam Hildreth, and Hunter Salas. And I don't want to dwell too much on this this loss, but one of the things that that Steve Forbes said in the postgame is that Wake had a game plan going into this game against Florida State and that it was not implemented on the court. The, The Deeks deviated from a winning game plan. And so I thought about it. I looked back at at my preview for this Florida State game. And one of the the keys that I thought was really important after watching film on Florida State was getting the ball moving on offense. That because of Florida State's immense size, if you got the ball moving around the key, got the ball moving on offense, you would get the Seminoles out of position and it would open up some, some high percentage shots. And one of the things that was noted about the way that Wake played against Florida State, that it was a lot of singular offense. It was a lot of players taking out upon themselves to drive to the hoop, create shots for themselves. It wasn't a lot of ball movement and Wake Forest kind of got in ruts where the ball didn't move around. It stayed in one player's hands. And so I think that was a really big issue. The staying out of foul trouble, also another really, really big problem. Andrew Carr fouled out. Efton Reed had four fouls. Hunter Salas, Boopy Miller, Cam Hildreth all had three fouls. I mean, some of this was the the end of game situation where Wake Forest was just throwing fouls out for several possessions. I don't want to, you know, have a revisionist history where that's completely forgotten, but foul trouble was certainly a part of the game for Wake Forest, 22 fouls on the game, and Florida State had 18. That doesn't seem like a big difference, but Florida State was also rotating their lineup like crazy. They had, I want to count it, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven players playing that game. Eleven. And nine of them played over ten minutes. That's a really, really deep lineup, a lot of rotation. And so that foul trouble, though it was 18 fouls, not a singular Florida State Seminole had more than two fouls on the game. So while Wake Forest was having to rotate players because they they wanted to have them for the entire game, Afton Reed, Andrew Carr. Etc. 
Florida State never had those issues. So Wake Forest did not stay out of foul trouble. But it was the turnovers. I think the turnovers were the game. It was the game changer. I mean, you can't have 20 turnovers and win a basketball game in my mind. And so, you know, I asked Steve Forbes after the game, how do you look at this? Like, do you flush it? Do you learn from it? Like, do you go back and learn from it? What do you, what do you do? He said that, you know, they're going to, they're going to look at this game and figure out what went wrong. The, some of the obvious things that went wrong and, and learn and grow from it. And so it's early in the ACC season, a lot to come for Wake Forest. And, and as much as this game hurts and some may look at it as the sky is falling type of game. I think Florida state's a lot better than their record. I think Florida state's a good basketball team. I think they're going to hurt a lot of teams this season. And I think they're hitting their stride. I think that's going to remain a quad two loss for wake forest for the, the entirety of the season. And so at the end of the day, you looked at it in Kempom, you looked at it in that wake forest did not move very much at all. And based on some of the other results that have gone on in the past week, you know, a few days in college basketball, Wake Forest basically stagnant, you know, before that, before the game and after the loss, not a whole lot of movement. And so I wrote a, a, my take the, the day after the Florida state game, after I, I drove back from Tallahassee and my take was that Wake Forest season is just beginning. You look at the first 15 games of the Wake Forest schedule, a lot of highs. You have the, the, the nine game winning streak. You have the three, and zero start in the ACC. You also have the lows, especially before Efton Reed was granted his waiver through the transfer portal. You have the losses at Georgia and then in Charleston to LSU and Utah, some low moments for this team. And also some very high moments, beating Florida, beating Rutgers, beating Boston college on the road, beating Miami at home. Those are some very high highs for wake Forest in the first 15 games. But the point of my take is that matters, yes. But what will what will matter infinitely more is the next 16 ACC regular season conference games for Wake Forest. Right now in the net, eight of those games, so half of those games are going to be quad one opportunities. And then I believe four more are going to be quad twos. That is ample opportunity for the Demon Deacons to either make their season or break their season. I think Wake Forest is in a really good spot right now. I mean, obviously it could be better, but I think they're in a very good standing right now in Kempom and Net, where they put themselves in position to be in position. The season is in front of them, and now it's about how they take that early season, both the highs and the lows, put it aside, and move forward. You're going to have an away game at UNC, an away game at Duke, a home game against Duke. You're going to play teams like Clemson. You're going to play teams like Pitt. You have NC State on the road, Virginia at home. All of these really good teams and big-time opportunities for Wake Forest where a couple wins there could finally see Wake Forest get into its first NCAA tournament since 2017. That's a long way in the future, but the season is just ahead of Wake Forest. And I think as much as you want to look back on those first 15 games and really evaluate what Wake Forest has done, who they are as a team, and, and try and use that to do, to say what is to come. It all starts on Saturday against Virginia. That, I think, is the beginning of this new season for Wake Forest. I almost think about this being overtime, and you start back 0-0. Wake Forest, probably I would give themselves, you know, two, or four, two to four points to start overtime because I think they've improved their standing from the beginning of the season, how people were looking at Wake Forest. I think they have improved. They've gotten themselves in the conversation, but in my mind, it is overtime. And now Wake Forest has to go play to win the game. And so these next 16 games are going to be absolutely critical to when we look back at Wake Forest season in March, April, what have you, and say, what is the story of 2023, 2024 Demon Deacons? I think it's got to be the next 16 games. Before we move on from, from Florida State and start looking ahead to Virginia, I want to kick it over to, to Ben. Believe it or not, even though Ben is not here, he pre-recorded his thoughts on the Florida State game, giving a little bit of context, a little bit of his 
notes from the game. So I'll kick it over to Ben and let him help tell the story of that Florida State loss in Tallahassee Tuesday night. Take it away, Ben. Hey, everybody. Obviously, you know, super bummed. Had to miss this week's full episode, but didn't feel like I could leave you all hanging, you know, for the entire time. So I did just want to chime in with a couple thoughts about Wake Forest's 87-82 road loss to Florida State. You know, the, the one thing I kept thinking when I was watching this game is what a frustrating game it must have been just for, you know, the Wake Forest fans. There were several times throughout the game where the Deeks fought almost all the way back, even, you know, late in the game, cut the deficit to two, had, you know, a chance to get over the hump on several different occasions, but it was just that Achilles heel. And, you know, this narrative was discussed a lot on Twitter, just the turnovers, the the inability to take care of the ball against a Florida State team that, as Essex and I talked about, you know, before this game, it's just a, a difficult and strange matchup. They have a ton of size. They play 10, 11 guys. That's something that, you know, Wake is not going to come up against on a bunch of different occasions this year. I think something also that wasn't, you know, necessarily discussed in our podcast before this game was that, you know, this Wake Forest team got a tough draw with a grueling overtime game. You know, I saw someone say this on Twitter, you know, a grueling overtime game on Saturday, very emotional win. You know, you Forbes, Steve Forbes mentioned that they were going to practice the next day, even though it was a light practice. Then they had to travel down to Florida State right after that to, you know, to face a Florida State team that appears to be trending in the right direction and sort of figuring things out themselves. So tough loss. You know, I saw some doomsday takes on Twitter, as I always do after, you know, games like this. And I just don't think. I just don't think they're valid at all. You know, you you look at the numbers for this game. Obviously, Wake's backcourt didn't necessarily have the best night in terms of ball security. You had, you know, your three main guards, Boopy Miller, Cameron Hildreth, Hunter Salas, combined for 13 turnovers. And, you know, that is that is not like them. That is not characteristic of them. That's not necessarily something they've been dealing with on that scale the whole season. But if you look at, you know, in a more widespread, you know, distribution of the turnovers, you had six guys have at least two turnovers which that means not only is one player struggling to take care of the ball everybody is struggling to take care of the ball and that resulted in 20 team turnovers and it is nearly impossible to win an ACC game on the road or at home for that matter with those numbers doesn't matter who your opponent is you know looking at some of the other numbers from this game it's not like Wake had a bad shooting night they shot 47 percent from the field in the first half ish 48 percent in the second half Diaz was pretty good from the feet from three point line in the first half, you know, five of 12 struggled a little bit more in the, in the second half, but you know, the shooting numbers alone aren't something that cost wake Forest that game by and large, it was the inability to take care of the ball, the turnovers and Florida state really just, you know, made this game difficult for wake Forest. They did a great job of speeding wake Forest up as, you know, Steve Forbes like to put it, making them play outside of their comfort zone and wake the biggest takeaway for me is that Wake really just never looked fully comfortable out there. I don't think they ever really found a rhythm. They were never able to get anything going consistently on offense. They were always sort of playing catch up in this game. And, you know, there, Cam Hildreth, I thought overall, played a very good game, 25 points. Booby Miller was, again, solid, 21 points. Hunter Salas, you know, probably wasn't necessarily as effective as he wanted to be. Parker Fredrickson really kept the Deeks in it for a while. You know, obviously came off the bench and had some some very big shots. Again, another lackluster night from Andrew Carr. I said on the podcast I was sort of looking for more from him against against this Florida State team. Didn't really have a good night. The whole team just looked a little bit out of sorts, out of whack. But I think something to be encouraged about is, you know, despite turning the ball over 20 times, they still scored 82 points on the road. Wake Forest is a very, very good offensive team. And I think, you know, it's not like Wake Forest has a massive gap in the way their team is comprised. And, you know, it's not like they're especially thin at one position group or the other. Turnovers are something that can kill, you know, the ability of any team to win any game, no matter how your team is made up. So I don't I don't think that this represents necessarily a long-term issue for Wake Forest. Obviously, if the, these sort of performances keep, you know, happening on the road or, you know, against certain types of teams, then I think you can look at it and maybe see that it's, a, a tendency but right now it's sort of just a blip i would say you know wake has obviously they've, they've still won nine out of their last 10 steve forbes will be the first guy to tell you that one game neither makes nor breaks a season you know the the ncaa tournament bid was not clinched after they beat miami 
And it's certainly not out of the picture now that they've lost to Florida state. So I think it's a good opportunity on Saturday for, to, for Wake Forest to come back home, right the ship against a Virginia team that has struggled mightily on the road this year and is maybe not necessarily the level of team that Tony Bennett is used to coaching over there. So I think, yeah, that's a good opportunity for Wake Forest. And just some of the other things that Wake Forest sort of struggled with against Florida State, you know, they had guys in foul trouble. Jameer Watkins went 11 of 11 from the free throw line. You know, obviously there was some some intentional fouling late in the game there. But, you know, Florida State, by and large, was able to get whatever they wanted against Wake Forest offensively. You know, they were 14 of 25 from the field in the second half and only attempted five three-pointers. So that tells you that they're and they attempted 22 free throws in the second half alone. So that tells me that they're not struggling to get inside. They're getting to the basket. They're getting the shots that they thrive on. They're using that size to their advantage. And Wake Forest definitely was one of their, I think, worst defensive performances of the year. But, you know, these are things that they can bounce back from. And I'm not I'm not worried about it long term. Essex, you know, wrote a great article that I think is important for the fan base to read and hear that. A lot of a lot of basketball left to be played. Sixteen conference games left to be played. You have matchups against, you know, eight other quad one teams. So the opportunities are still out there. You know, by and large, in the long run, I don't think Wake will be punished by the metrics for losing a road conference game at a Florida State team that is now three and one in the conference. So, you know, I think the fan base sort of would benefit from just taking a deep breath and sort of understanding that it's all still out there for this Wake Forest team. It is definitely all still out there and there's going to be a lot of encouraging opportunities and, and, you know, more chances for this team to prove themselves and show what a force they can be in this conference. So, and I expect Steve Forbes to have this team ready to go for Saturday against Virginia. Well, there you have it. There was Ben Conroy with his thoughts on Wake Forest loss to Florida State in Tallahassee Tuesday night. Ben, thanks for leaving me on my own for this podcast. And uh, I really, really hope that that trip to New York this weekend is worth it. Um, I say that kidding. There'll probably be times later this season when one of us is running the show on the boots on the ground pod and one of us is, is off doing something else. Um, so this, this is a good trial period, but Ben Conroy, everybody. And then looking ahead to Virginia, I have some thoughts on this game against the Cavaliers, but I also want to kick it before we get there to another very important guest filling in for Ben in many ways on the show tonight when we're recording I knew that that missing out on Ben Conroy was going to leave a void in this show. You can't listen to my voice too much, right? And so I went out and found a voice that could talk about the the Demon Deacons. And I trust me, we, we pre-recorded this just before I started this podcast. A whole lot of other things. And so, of course, I bring to you the very special guest on episode 23 of the Boots on the Ground pod. Connor O'Neill. For this next segment, we now bring in the publisher of Deacons Illustrated and Devils Illustrated on the Rivals Network, and also, of course, a friend of both friend and colleague of both Ben and I, Connor O'Neill. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I don't have boots on, so I don't know if that's uh, ill. I don't know if that violates any policies. Like, I don't even know if I have boots. Honestly, but um, I can go put some shoes on if you want. You know, I I'm I'm not wearing boots right now. I think that you know no one's ever said that before about having boots on the ground. Actually, uh, I don't think I've worn boots too often when I'm on the ground for events. But uh, that may be something to consider going forward. Uh, so just to to get us started here, Connor, something uh, that we're kind of starting with our guest called the shoot around. So just a a few rapid fire questions, and of course the one that. I really want to get started with in terms of, of you is uh, the replays, the referee replays. Um, I know you're a stickler about it. Are there any notable games that, that you remember in covering where the, the, the replays were just so egregious from, from the referees? Uh, rewatching. Was it, uh, I think Wake Georgia tech. 
football, football this past year. Yeah, wasn't that the one where there were like eight and five or six of them were just like spot replays where they moved the ball a half yard one way or the other way? I think, yeah, wasn't that the game specifically where the third down sound music started making an emergence in the in the press box because so much of the time was, was just wasted with ref reviews? It was either that or it was their next home game, which was Pitt. And Pitt was the one where uh, the man, I believe, with a few names in the press box was making his homerisms known quite loudly and i used uh the my what's become my theme music on the josh graham show um to kind of break some awkward silences and crack up uh josh's producer will dalton who sits next to me in the press box yeah that was that was was a special game no i mean the replay review thing like it, it dates back to when i was in newspapers and when i was on deadline and it drive me nuts because selfishly like i wanted to have as much time as possible to write a story and get it into the paper and when we spend three minutes looking at whether there should be 1.2 or 1.4 seconds on the clock in a five-point basketball game it really didn't sit well with me but then you know, you, you kind of you get these series and then you find more evidence to support them. And along the way, it's just like we're giving teams extra timeouts. We're breaking up the flow of games. Uh, we're looking at stuff that is clearly obvious. The refs rely on it. And I think refereeing has deteriorated because they rely on replay as a crutch. I just think it, it, we're, we're so far down uh, the rabbit hole with where replay is that it'd be better off just to be abolished. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, if you're watching it at home, the commercial breaks must be absolutely like mind bending at this point. I know another one of your your favorite things, at least I've picked up on recently with with basketball is the referees, you know, mentioning the refs before every game, I think is kind of an interesting point. Do you have a favorite ref? that you watch out there? I know Roger Ayers is is probably up there, but. I'm friends with too many photographers. Just call Roger Ayers my favorite. Um, If you ask any photographer about Roger Ayers, they'll tell you that he is their least favorite ref in the country because Roger makes a habit out of kicking photo photographers and uh, TV people down there too. Don't, Don't forget them. It's not just the still people, but Roger will kick them in the shoes if he feels like they're encroaching on the court space. And he makes a, a note of it. Um, he's a very good referee. Uh, he just, it kind of, it sticks in his crawl that photographers are right up under him on the court and he makes it known to them that he does not like them. My favorite ref in the ACC is Ron Groover. Um, I think he does a really good job of handling the game. I think there's there's never really a situation you find that he's overwhelmed or that a coach has no idea what's going on. Like he's always going to communicate with them. Um, the ref thing that like that goes back um, my I guess quote unquote mentor when I worked in Burlington, Adam Smith always would point out who the refs were calling games. And so it's just, it's, it's a way to get to know their names and um, you know, they're people like I did a story. Um, he retired, uh, I think 2019. Um, so the 1819 basketball season was the last one, but Tim Nestor was a decent ACC rep for years and years. And, he worked at uh, R.J. Reynolds, and so he was he was getting a promotion at Reynolds that was going to make it impossible for him to be on the road and call like 80 games in a four-month or five-month span, and so he had to step away from it, but I got to do a story on him, and that was really, really fun way to kind of connect uh, with somebody that, you know, fans will see and boo for two hours and then forget about. Um, but yeah, I always, always try to keep an eye the other thing, you know, you can, if you get a sense of which refs are the good ones in the league, like Groover and Ayers are two of the best, um, you'll get a sense of what the ACC thinks of each team that's involved in cer- certain games. Um, that's something I've kind of picked up from football coaches telling me that too, is, you know, there's there's tiers to how good they are. And on the football side of things, like when you get a Jerry Magalanes or a um, Jeff Flanagan, you know that the ACC does not think very highly of your game that day. Um, in basketball, when you get, I don't know, basketball is trickier because football is just the one head ref. Basketball is three refs. 
Um, so I used to get example for basketball. Uh, when you get a crew like I, I make fun of him all the time, he is a good ref aside from all the other bullshit. Ted Valentine, if he's on your game, if Roger Ayers, um, Ron Gruber, Burt Smith is a Final Four ref, um, those guys, if, if you get one or two of them on your games, the ACC thinks you're playing an important game. I, I always love when Teddy's on the on the ref. Just simply, I don't I don't know them like you do, but the vibes alone kind of kind of when when Teddy's in the house, it's it's usually something. Last last oh, question for the la, last question for the the shoot around. Uh, in, in terms of what's what's been in the news the past uh, few hours, who's going to be the next head coach at Alabama? Who do you think? Man, I guess. Uh... And kind of going by the most recent thing I saw, which was right before hopping on. Um, what did I just, I just saw that Kalen DeBear, DeBoer, um, the Washington coach, and Mike Norvell are their two like legit candidates right now. Uh, and they kind of ruled out Lane Kiffin, which that always seemed like a joke to me. Um, and uh, ruled out Dabo, which was interesting to me. Um, but, you know, Kalen DeBear, De, God, I'm going to struggle pronouncing his name if he's the Alabama coach. Um, he's uh, he's won something like 90% of his games as a college coach, and he's worked his way up. That's the most impressive thing to me about him is he's worked his way up from the lower levels. He hasn't, you know, gone the GA at a P5 and then position coach at a P5 and then coordinator at a P5. Like some of those coaches like that, they only know that type of football. You know that somebody who's come up from D2 or D3 or the FCS even – knows how to make the most of a situation. So to me, when you put somebody like that in a situation where, with near unlimited resources, oof, that's uh, they're, they're going to win. Uh, and Mike Norvell is interesting just because, uh, like Dave Fawson told us in a, in a presser before they played Florida State this year, he has embraced the NIL and transfer portal aspect of building a roster better than anybody in the ACC. And, probably better than anybody in the country when it comes down to it. So that's, you know, Alabama has, it's not like Alabama hasn't embraced those things, but we are what 12 months. Uh, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before that Nick Saban was telling boosters that they couldn't compete with Texas A&M unless they got more money. So, you know, if, if you want, somebody to come in there and generate a whole lot of NIL. Uh, that's certainly what Mike Norvell has been able to do at Florida state. Yeah. That's going to be an interesting one to follow <laughs> all the way down from the, the, the flight watching and all that, that stuff. Uh, it's going to, it's going to be, cause it, it I, this is going to come out tomorrow morning. If Friday morning, like Alabama has said that they're pretty much committed to getting that done within 72 hours from when Saban retired. So that, that could be a pretty, like snap call, whoever, whoever it is. Uh, yeah. Moving, moving on just in terms of, of now kind of getting into the wake forest side of things. I correct me if I'm wrong, but you've said a couple times, I think I've seen it on Twitter and in some writing that, that wake forest can be one of the best teams in the ACC this year. What, what about them kind of makes you, you believe that that's the case. I would put their five starters up against anybody else in the conference. Um, you have three guards that are three level scorers, and I, I don't. Um, I think their backcourt is just as good as Miami and Duke. Uh, I think those three that like those are the three best backcourts in in the ACC. Um, I think Andrew Carr, even though he's struggled in the last couple games, we we've seen him struggle from time to time. It's usually against length, and it's usually against athleticism, and I'm. You know, I'm not trying to make excuses for him. Like, he could have played better against Miami and Florida State. But, you know, Matthew Cleveland and the barrage of Florida State athletes that they're able to throw at you at that four position, I mean, not there There aren't too many teams in the in the, in the the conference that can do that to you. So I think he'll – he's not going to go through the next, you know, what, eight weeks uh, playing the way he has in the last week. And then, you know, we've – I'm sure you guys have discussed Efton Reed and his impact at length. Um, I wish I could tell you that I was a listener of the pod, but I, 
I, I guess technology eludes me. Like everybody listens to podcasts except me, I think. I don't even listen to the ones that I do uh, that I'm on as a co-host. But um, he just he's changed everything about Blake's complexion. And just to steal Forbes' line from uh, ACC Media Day, he changes Wake's trajectory. He makes Wake a team that can compete at the top of the ACC. He he gives you rim protection. He gives you a low post option. Um, Wake really hasn't had a low post option who can score out of the low block, uh, can also face up and hit a 15-footer in your face. Um, you know, Dallas Walton was the closest thing to it, and Dallas was a little more of a finesse big. Like, he was going to step out and pick and pop you and hit a – top of the key three, but you weren't throwing the ball to him on a low block and having him go through somebody for a bucket. Uh, Efton can do that. That's why I I went on with Josh uh, the day after the Rutgers game, and it's like, Josh, Efton Reed had 12 points, 14 rebounds against Cliff Omayori, who abused Wake last year up in Piscataway. Like, this is a team that's ceiling is 14 or 15 ACC wins, and if you win 15 games in the ACC, you have a chance to win the conference regular season. So, yeah, I, I, I know that you're you're catching me at a time when uh, I don't I don't think the fan base is thinking the sky is falling right now, but they're certainly not in the best of places when a nine game winning streak ends and it ends against a team that had already lost six games. Like Florida State is not any shake of an impressive team. Um, they're better than their record indicates because they've gotten some guys back. But, yeah, I I think that this Wake team, I, I still think almost as highly uh, of them as I did going into the Florida State game. Yeah, that, that Florida State game is going to be interesting. I, I agree with you. I think they're a better team than their record indicates. I mean, we were both on that ACC media call when when Leonard Hamilton kind of said that, that they had figured their rotation out. And that's, that was, a, that's a scary quote from Leonard, man. That's when they were going good four or five years ago, he was bringing guys. He's almost hockey line changing guys uh, with a 11 and 12 man rotation. And he hasn't had that the last couple of years, but when he says that they're getting the semblance of a rotation together, then yeah, that should be a shot across the bow of everybody in the ACC. Yeah. I mean, when wake was racking up fouls all Tuesday night, I mean, they were running like 10 guys and never really had any issues because no one w was hitting even really three or four. So Florida State, I think they are, I think they're going to hurt some teams. I don't think they're going to be a great team, but I think they're going to screw up some teams uh, along the way. It, you mentioned Efton and, and we talked, of course, everyone's kind of talking about Efton, the Efton effect. Uh, but in terms of the whole transfer waiver thing, it, it, talk about impact app impacting a lot of teams seasons and it's going to be something that I think is going to have to come up in March like how how teams are evaluated pre getting players through the waiver and the post like having those um those waivers be approved I think is going to you know just teams before and after like you talk a lot about the before Efton after Efton how do you think that's going to be evaluated when when people look at Wake Forest in March Think it's got to matter right I, I think you know again we're both on that ACC teleconference we hear Forbes say that common sense has to matter um and that's before you talk about how dumb it is that we attach so much weight to games that are played in the middle of November and act like teams don't get better across the duration of a season um you know, I'm still I think Forbes and I are, are two of the only people in the country that are so vocal about the fact that like on, on Selection Sunday and that type of thing, when, when it gets down to resumes, I always wanted to see that last 10 stat. You always, like 10, 15 years ago, you always saw that last, what did what did this team do in their last 10 games? And if a team was like 9-1 and one or 8-2 and two and lost to the team that wound up winning their conference tournament in the in there, and that, that, that team should get an advantage. Um I understand the metrics of it, but, but yeah, um, I think you, you have to look at if, if you really dive into it, I, I would hope the committee dives into it. I, I won't pretend to know everything that they think about and everything that they don't think about, but I would hope you think about where Wake has improved specifically with Efton Reed. Like 
their interior defense is so much better. Their rebounding is so much better with him. They just they're able to play so much differently than they did in those first you you want to say the first seven games. I mean, they scored an impressive win against Florida without him. Um, you can't kind of forget that. Um, but really the the Georgia game, the the first three losses, Georgia was Georgia, Utah, and LSU. Um, you, I, I hate playing the hypothetical game, uh, and I try not to do it as often as possible, but you have to think about what Wake would have done against those teams if they had their seven-foot center who has made this kind of difference since available to him in those games. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think I think all those games look different on that Florida game. I think that Florida game was big, winning that without Efton Reed. I think that's going to say a lot. And to your point about just the early season versus the late season, first off, I was thinking about Vanderbilt last year and how they made that that deep run or run of games late, and it was almost like people kind of neglected it to a certain extent. Looking at Wake and just where things stand now versus what's coming up, I mean, the quad ones that are on the schedule, a lot of quad twos as well. How much weight do you put on where the Deeks stand today? They're pretty solid in Kembaum, pretty solid in net versus just how much the next two, three, four weeks matter when they, they really start playing big time teams. See, I, I saw in, I was on Josh this earlier this week. Um, last year I did the net thing last year. There was like a month or month and a half where every morning I checked the net and I checked to see where Duke was and where Wake was and who became a quad one win overnight, who dropped to a quad two or quad three, all that shit. And it just got tiring, man. It it got to a point where it was like an exercise in futility of just figuring out how flawed this system was. It's especially with the quads. Like I, I get the, the overall ranking of it. Um, I get it to an extent. I think it's flawed now because teams are exposing the neutral court side of it. But um, I have not looked at net once this year. And I say that proudly. I I, I think I'm going to go till February until I look at net. So you've got to tell me, like, how does their net stack up against, uh, I won't say Miami, because they just lost the worst loss of any ACC team this year. Horrible. Um how does Wake stack up against Syracuse? That's somebody that has a similar record as them. Well, so Wake right now is 53rd in net. Syracuse is 73rd. Okay. Like, okay. Nets, uh, NC State is 71, Pitt's 66, Miami 61. I think the metrics have to catch up on how bad Pitt is. I, I really do not yeah. think that's a good team. Pitt had that non-con that kind of worked for them-ish. It's, I thought Pitt was going to be better than they are, and right now they are they just don't look good. Yeah, I, I don't like Blake Henson's game. He's just a shooter. Um, he's a 6'8 guy that should be inside rebounding at least some of the time, and he just wants to float around the perimeter and jack threes up. But, yeah, I, I look at Wake's schedule coming up, and the, the game at NC State, I guess – would be on the borderline of a quad one game because it's on the road. I think, think NC State actually might be decent. Um, they might they might be good. I watched them that UNC game last night. Like, yeah. I think they've got the makings of, of something. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would probably – maybe maybe I'm paying too much attention to the loaf attitude and the, the woe is us, but I don't think NC State shoots two of 18 at home again this year on three-pointers like they did last night. Uh, or something along those lines. Yeah. I, I think you're going to bank on that team making a few more threes than they did against Carolina. Um, so that's a tough game coming up. I I mean, I actually think that game at State is tougher than Virginia at home. Uh, it's a Virginia team that's been blown out four times away from uh, JPJ. Um we don't even have to talk about Louisville, although I guess Louisville might be road warriors. They they won their first road game in like two years or whatever it was. Um, then it'll get real. Then then it'll be at Carolina. A quick turnaround. I'm realizing that's a Saturday to Monday swing. That's uh that's where you can evoke some Dave Flawson, where every time you ask Dave about a disadvantage in the schedule, he'll say we're 
thankful that the ACC thinks highly of us, highly enough of us to put us in a primetime game and put us in a big time TV spot. Uh, I don't, I'm curious what Forbes would think of that. I, I don't think I've heard Steve's take on it, but um, yeah, I haven't either. I mean, there, there is some validity to it. Like Wake is good enough to, and exciting enough. You know, this schedule is made back in the summer. So Wake's program is at the point where ESPN wants to see him in some big Mondays. Those games are on ESPN. That's, they're always going to be against the marquee opponent. Like you're never going to see a, uh, Wake Boston College game, you know, hashtag the rivalry. You're never going to see that on a big Monday. You're always going to be playing a Duke or Carolina or Virginia for that matter. So, you know, that that's that's really going to tell us a lot about this team. And it's uh, if they win in the Smith Center, that's going to be a huge resume booster. Yeah. I mean, just to that point quickly, you, you see how things have changed a little bit with Wake Forest. You open the ACC at home for the first time and literally like forever and then say that again 10 years 10 years jeff Bazdelic was the coach the last time wake had a home opener uh there was an acc game so yeah i was probably somewhere in in middle or elementary school the last time that, that wake forest opened at home in the acc that duke home game is on a saturday i feel like that's big and then the way they're closing the ACC with two two in a row at home, I think that that is a sign that the view, at least from a conference perspective on Wake Forest, probably is changing a little bit. And and changing a little bit is all fine and good. We talk about things that haven't happened in, in a while. Wake Forest hasn't made the NCAA tournament since 2017. And, and, and then it was for the first four, which is like a yep. consolation bid for some folks in, in their in their eyes talk about changes if wake forest finally gets over that hump makes the the change first off in your in your eyes and i know it's early but gonna put you on the spot does wake forest make the ncaa tournament this season and why or or why not in your eyes it's so hypothetical it is Uh, it is i i think this is the year i mean i've said that their ceiling is 14 or 15 acc wins and God, I, you you can't say anymore that even, you know, the team they had two years ago went 13 and seven and got left out. And that was when you could say, well, I guess you can't just win 13 ACC games and say you're automatically in. Well, Clemson last year was 14 and six in the ACC and didn't get in. So now you now you can say you can't win 14 in the ACC and be locked up a spot. Uh, so I guess. God, if somebody wins 15 this year and gets left out, um, uh, that's that's going to be a tough pill to swallow for whoever it is and and for people that care about the league in general. Um, but I, I, I do think this is the year I think Wake Forest breaks through. I think they make the NCAA tournament. I don't want to get into whether it's in Dayton or uh, as a 10 seed or an 8 seed. Like, there's, that shit's just too far reaching. Um I think to to be comfortable, I think they'd probably have to go two and one against uh, the one game at Carolina and then the two games against Duke. I mean, those are those those right now you would say are the uh, two legitimate locks in the ACC to make the NCAA tournament. I don't based on Clemson losing the last three games. And I watched a good bit of their game against Virginia Tech last night, and they did some truly stupid stuff. Yeah, they looked totally uh, I don't even. Yeah, I don't even know if I would put them in locked situa- uh, status right now. I mean, it just looked awful. So you're talking about the, the two Blue Bloods over there on Tobacco Road being the only two surefire guaranteed games or surefire guaranteed contenders. Like, you get three games against them, you need to take advantage of it. And if you go one and two, I don't think it's the end of the world. It just closes your room for error if, if you get with my where I'm coming from there. Uh, but I think two and one against them, like, yeah, you can you can talk about uh, having a really good resume come Selection Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I think until Wake Forest proves it, they're always going to be battling that room for error type territory, like always kind of coasting along that that line the fence uh until they can prove i think that they're a consistent tournament team so I, yeah i'm with you i mean it's it's early and i'm sorry for asking that question but you know got got to have something you just, 
you just wrote a damn column about how the season hadn't started yet. And you're trying oh, to, yeah, you're basically trying to get me to predict the whole season out. Well, yeah. So is UConn going to win it all? Yeah. Well, they look good without their big seven footer. Yeah. Klingon. Yeah. Yeah. They're, UConn, UConn might be really good. I'll, I'll let you go, Connor. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the, the Boots on the Ground pod. Connor O'Neill, the publisher of Deacons and Devils Illustrated on the Rivals Network. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Essex. Say hi to Ben for me. Well, folks, that was Connor O'Neill. A, a very interesting conversation between Connor and I. He's he's a, a great colleague and friend of, of Ben and I, and we always have some good fun with him, but I mean, spanning topics from from replay reviews to to favorite referees, Alabama's next head coach, bringing in the intro with "If I Was Wearing Boots." Right now, really bringing the the boots on the ground mentality to the show. It's a question I've never been asked before in regards to our whole boots on the ground mentality. So kudos to Connor on on that for for asking a question in regards to our quote unquote boots that I don't think I've ever heard before, but some very illuminating thoughts from Connor and, and some really good conversation. So thanks to, to, to him for joining us. And, and I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast already follows Connor and, and reads his stuff, but if you aren't definitely go follow him on Twitter and, and read his fantastic writing over at, at rivals with, with Deacons illustrated and devils illustrated. Now we can finally move forward. The Virginia game on Saturday, I think it's a big game for Wake Forest. As I said before, before we got into to Ben's thoughts and, and the conversation with Connor, this is the beginning of a new season for Wake Forest. And there's no better way to get it started than with a win against a Virginia team that in the grand scheme of how people look at college basketball they look at Virginia as a good team. I don't think they're as good this year, but I think Virginia, the 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 way people look at them, they will, for right now, always be looked at as a good team. And so it's a great way for Wake Forest to get things started if they can win, get themselves back on a winning path, and, and really you know, ensure that that Florida State loss is kind of a, a one-off of sorts. There are certainly going to be probably – some more drop-offs this season. It's hard to win away games, and there are a lot of good teams in the ACC. But to get back on the right foot and, and get Wake Forest back on this path that they've seemingly been charting towards the NCAA tournament, a lot could could get done positively with a win against Virginia on Saturday at the Joel. 2 p.m. tip-off on ESPN2. Kevin Brown and Debbie Antonelli on the call. The history of this game is pretty, pretty interesting in regards to Steve Forbes's tenure at Wake Forest. Two seasons ago, a win in Charlottesville against Virginia was the beginning of a very, very big, important run for Wake Forest in their quest to get back to the NCAA tournament that came up just short. Of course, you all know that part of the story, but the victory began a four game winning streak. that saw Wake Forest go from number 57 in Ken Palm to number 34. As I said, Virginia, a perennial power, a program that is looked upon very nicely by the nation. A win against Virginia showed just how far the Demon Deacons had come in Steve Forbes's short tenure in Winston-Salem. And then flash forward to this past season where a matchup with Virginia had a very different effect on Wake Forest season. The game this time at home, Wake Forest gets an, an early deficit, claws its way back to within one midway through the second half. There were about eight minutes left on the clock. Wake Forest within one point, and then they couldn't finish the job. And that defeat was the opener for a four-game losing streak that se- severely impacted the Deeks' hopes of an NCAA tournament bid in the 22-23 season. That was the beginning of a downfall of sorts. That four-game losing streak was really, really tough for Wake Forest last year. And so just as much as in in 2021-22, when a win against Virginia got Wake Forest season really going, a loss this past year against the Cavaliers just showed how much things hurt. Now looking ahead to the metrics, so... 
the script right now is, at least in the metrics, they look at Wake Forest as a better basketball team. Wake Forest number 43 in Kempom, Virginia number 60. Though the teams are are much closer in net. Wake Forest 53, UVA 55. And if you watch college basketball, you already know this, but I'm just going to make it clear again. Virginia is the slowest team in all college basketball. That's in the metrics per Kempom. And their offensive efficiency is ranked 125. They are a very, very good defensive team, though. They're number 24 in defense per Ken Palm, and the stats continue to back it up. 11th best opponent effective field goal percentage in the nation, number six block rate, number 10 steal percentage. They slow teams down on defense. They make it incredibly hard to be successful against a Virginia defense. And so it, it presents a huge challenge for Wake Forest on Saturday. As I said before, this is a Virginia team. This is not your traditional Virginia team. They are young. And as a result, you're seeing some of the struggles that can come with a young team. Virginia is 11-4, and four, yes, but they are 2-2 two and two in the ACC. They've had some solid wins, but also some, some troubling losses. Um, the Most notably, the loss against Notre Dame in South Bend on December 30th. Virginia got absolutely clobbered. They lost 76 to 54 to a Notre Dame team that is improving, no doubt, but a Notre Dame team that they should not be losing to and absolutely should not be losing to by 22. They, they beat Louisville pretty handedly and then lost at NC state on the sixth by 16 points. So it's hard to figure out this Virginia team right now. We talked a few days ago about how funky Florida state was and, and surely, you know, the way they played that, that was a funky team. That was a funky team that beat wake forest. Um, I, I wouldn't say the same thing about Virginia. I don't think they're funky. I think they're a team still trying to figure things out. They are a young basketball team, but they're also a basketball team coached by Tony Bennett, one of the best coaches in the NCAA. And so I think Virginia will be a good team but they're not the team that they usually are. I don't think they are one of the top tier teams in the conference this year. And so that presents an opportunity for Wake Forest to go get one. And as I said, get back on the right track. I talked about how young of a team they are. They're really a nine deep lineup in my eyes. A decent amount of those minutes are going to the starters, 32.5% coming from the bench. It's about average in college basketball this season. They have that experience from, from Reese Beekman and then also their starting forward, Jake Groves, who was a transfer from Oklahoma, but otherwise young. The three other impact guards are all sophomores. I'll get up, get into them in a little bit. And then they have that up and coming forward, Blake Buchanan, not the former Wake Forest walk-on, but a different Blake Buchanan, who is a freshman, but a pretty impactful forward for Virginia. So Reese Beekman, he's Feels like he's been around college basketball forever. It's his fourth season with Virginia. And all of those seasons have been impactful. It's not like he played off the bench for a year or or wasn't a starter for a while. For four years, or going on four years, Reese Beekman has been a huge part of the Virginia Cavaliers, their complexion as a team. This year, he's definitely stepped up with guys like Kihei Clark gone. He's averaging a career-high 12.9 points, playing 30 minutes a game. He's a solid shooter, a really, really good ball distributor. His 90 assists are the third best in the nation. But Reese Beekman is a defensive basketball player. He's one, I know, one ACC defensive player of the year. Part of me, without looking it up on Google right now, wants to say it's more than one, but he is a defensive force in the conference. He's gritty. Causes a lot of discomfort for the opponents. 33 steals, leads the team by a wide margin. And he also has 10 blocks, even though he's 6'3". One of the other key guards, in my mind, is Isaac McNeely. He's a sophomore, one of the sophomores I was discussing. Three-point threat. It's all you kind of really have to... Not all you have to say about Isaac McNeely. He's got more to his game. But he is a three-point guy through and through. He's making them at a 48.6 clip. And that's good for 23rd in the NCAA. So as a sophomore, really good three-point shooter. um, And it's showing in the ACC games. 
He blitzed Syracuse with eight threes for a 22-point effort. That was their first ACC win of the season, the one that I did not mention earlier. Virginia clobbered Syracuse, and a big part of that was, was Isaac McNeely. And then in their two most recent conference games, McNeely went 4-7 from behind the arc in both of them. Andrew Rhodes, the third guard, transferred after a year at St. Thomas in Minnesota, started all 15 games for Virginia this year, 29 points per game. He's not really much of a shooter. He's decent rebounder, and he's got the second best assist on the team. But he's he's a guy, I think. He, he's a guy who gives you 29 minutes. And so he's that third guard. The one thing that I did pick up from the statistics on road, so he talk about limited shooting, not a whole lot of time at the free throw line either, just 10 attempts on the season. But road is struggling big time from the charity stripe. He's gone three of 10 from the free throw line this season. Fourth guard is Ryan Dunn. This one threw me for a loop for a little bit because though I've seen Ryan Dunn play, I didn't really know what he was classified as. Virginia calls him a guard, even though he's 6'8". Um, but he's giving 26 minutes per game. He leads the team in field goal percentage. I think he's a very good shooter. But shooter is, is a selective term there. It's a lot of layups. He gets to the hoop really well. With that size, he kind of plays like a forward a little bit, but still listed as a guard. So he's good at field goals. Let's put it that way. He can get to the hoop, get those high percentage attempts. And that's where you get a 53.6 field goal percentage on the season. 97 rebounds for Dunn, a team high. 31 blocks, also a team high. So very impactful as a fourth guard. Virginia, four guards in the starting lineup. And then his 29 steals, only trail Reese Beekman. I mentioned the a forward, a transfer forward. That's Jake Groves. He's 6'9", went to Oklahoma. He's played in every game this season, but only started 10. He can hit some threes. He's converting on, on 40% of his 42 attempts. Uh, and he's not, I again, like kind of what I was saying with McNeely. It's not his whole game, but it feels like three points are kind of his thing. But he's giving 20 solid minutes per game. They've got those depth pieces. Blake Buchanan is good as a freshman. 15 minutes per game. Doesn't shoot the ball much, um, but he's pretty solid rebounder. And he actually has a lot of offensive rebounds to go along with. I think the the rebounding is fine, but over half of his, or nearly half rather, of his rebounds are occurring on the offensive end. They've got a, another good guard in Leon Bond. Shoots the ball well uh, and is a really good offensive rebounder, believe it or not, as a guard at 6'5". Tane Murray, uh, notable because he's from New Zealand, which I think is is pretty cool. Not a big-time shooter, doesn't shoot the ball often, and, and usually a three-point guy when he is shooting the ball. So 17 of his 27 shots are from behind the arc. Makes them at a pretty good clip, so another three-point threat. And then Jordan Miner is the last player I'll highlight. That's a name that you probably have heard before if you follow Wake Forest basketball because if you remember, he was a player that the Deeks were reportedly interested in this summer through the transfer portal. Instead, he chose Virginia. He's averaging seven minutes a game, which feels a little weird to me. Uh, he's an impressive rebounder on the offensive end, but he's had that limited playing time. So interesting to see how much of a factor he'll end up being. My take on this game, again, it's a very, very big game. It's one of those quad one, quad two opportunities that I was talking about earlier. And I think it's an opportunity for Wake Forest to prove itself. I think Wake Forest has been really, really good when it plays at its best. I think Wake Forest can compete in the ACC to be one of the best teams in the conference by the end of the regular season. I think they can get up there. I think they have a chance to challenge for an ACC championship this season. I, I do believe it. And so this is when things start to get real for Wake Forest. This is where, again, as I said, the opportunity to prove themselves, it all starts with Virginia on Saturday. So my keys to the game, I've got a few of them. The first is protect the ball. I talked about the 20 turnovers against Florida State. That is never going to cut it, almost never going to cut it in a game. And interestingly enough, when I was I was in there there in person watching the game and then looking back at that game, a lot of these were unforced errors for the Wake Forest offense. There were dribbles off of shoes. 
passes to seemingly no one, struggles with the offensive inbounds, that can't happen against Saturday. <clears throat> Virginia is one of the top 25 teams in the country at forcing turnovers. Again, really, really good defense. And with the way their offense runs, Virginia is even better at avoiding turnovers than they are at creating them. So that means possessions are very limited in this game for Wake Forest. And so giving them away, especially giving away 20 via turnovers, is not going to bode well for the Deeks. Add in Virginia's slowest pace, that really slow as snail pace on offense. And to me, it just shows how valuable these, these possessions are going to be. And every single one is going to matter just a little bit more than they usually do for Wake Forest. Second key to the game is taking advantage of the size. So I talked about that four-guard lineup for Virginia. Virginia's tallest starter is 6'9". Its tallest consistent player is 6'11". That's Blake Buchanan. Interestingly enough, and, and I had this thought in my UVA preview, which will also come out on Friday as this podcast does, but I'd be interested to see if Buchanan, who started a few games for Virginia this season, if he starts on Saturday to match up against Efton Reed and, and his seven foot tall height. Regardless, there's going to be a big difference in height on both ends of the court for Wake Forest. We've seen it in a few games this season where Wake Forest is a lot taller. This is going to be one of those games. Virginia's most recent matchup against NC State, you'll of course remember who the big man is there. That's DJ Burns, proved at times in, in the Wolfpack's win over Virginia that they can struggle down low against tall, imposing players. Think Efton Reed. And so I feel like I say it all the time, but Efton, I think, is going to matter a great deal to this game if Wake Forest can win it. Because of how good Virginia's defense is, you need ways to penetrate it. And so one of those, I think, is going to be taking advantage of a size difference, and that's going to involve Efton. I think it can also involve Zach Keller. Third player in that regard is Andrew Carr who I know Connor talked about this earlier, hasn't had his best stuff in a while. I think this is a game where you got to get him going again. You got to get Andrew back on the right foot. And I think with this size difference, there's the opportunity to do that. The third point is close in on the paint. On offense, Virginia, from the film I watched against NC State, they're consistently pushing the ball on the inside. They're getting those passes inside the paint. And they're especially happening when the opponent's defense is off balance. So they're getting the defenses moving a lot, and then they're able to punch it inside and get easy, high percentage buckets. And so I think while Wake Forest has the size to impose its will in the paint on defense, that also brings about concerns about how ball movement can get the Deeks out of position. And so I think you have to be cognizant of the ball movement getting you out of position and the need to crash and help inside the paint because Virginia gets itself in the paint on the inside a lot to initiate its offense. But just as much as they go inside the paint, you got to watch for those outside shots, especially on the kicks when you're in the inside. Talking about Isaac McNeely, he's a three-point guy. They can kick the ball to him a lot when they drive it on the inside. So I think you got to close in on the paint, but keep an eye on Isaac McNeely. I think that's very critical for the Wake Forest defense against Virginia. The last key to the game is in regards to the offense. Patience. Do not settle for bad shots. As I said before, Virginia takes its time, a lot of time on offense. So as I said before, possessions are incredibly valuable against Virginia. So I'm not saying that Wake Forest should completely take its normal game out of consideration where they push the ball on often on offense. Wake Forest is a fast team. They have pace. But I think it might be worth considering the importance of each shot. Taking that time to settle and find the best shot, those high percentage shots, a, a, a term that I use a lot, but an important one, the high percentage shots. I think if Wake Forest takes that under consideration, uses the time that a Virginia de defense gives them, long possessions on offense, and utilizes that possession length to get better shots, then that I think is going to be Pretty important in regards to this game. Finally, my prediction. I've said it before. I think this is a big get-right opportunity for Wake Forest. 
This is not your normal Virginia team. They're young. They've had two not-so-great ACC losses. They're a very unique basketball team, so I don't know how much that's going to impact Wake Forest. But what I do know is that Wake Forest offense is really, really good when it finds its rhythm and takes good shots. So if they can do that, avoid another 20 turnover, whatever you want to call that, that occurred in Tallahassee on Tuesday night, I like where Wake Forest stands. And then I think the Wake Forest defense has vastly improved. So I think as long as they don't get in lost in Virginia's ball movement, I like how Wake Forest defense also matches up against the Virginia offense. This is a crowd that has proved itself a lot. Proved it in the Virginia Tech win. Proved it in the Miami win. Winston-Salem in the Wake Forest community is getting behind this Wake Forest team a lot. And so I think it could lift a Demon Deacons team that almost never loses at the Joel under Steve Forbes. And it can also impact a young Virginia team where the noise could be a little bit too loud. Both teams need this win. And I think it's going to really come down to just how hungry you are and who wants it more. With Steve Forbes running the show, with that in mind, I like Wake Forest. Wake Forest wins 72-67. That'll be all from us being myself and Connor O'Neill, and I guess Ben Conroy too, with his little uh, with his little cameo on the Boots on the Ground pod. Wake Forest, Virginia, Saturday, January 13th, 2 p.m. at the Joel on ESPN2. We'll have all the coverage at the game over on Blogger So Dear. Have our thoughts after the game on the Boots on the Ground pod, and then get everybody ready for another Tuesday matchup where Wake Forest travels across I-40 to play NC State. Thanks so much to Connor O'Neill for joining us. Thanks to Ben for getting his cameo in. And thanks to you for joining us on the Boots on the Ground pod. See you all soon.